John, chapter 13, verse 31, through chapter 14, verse 14, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Burkett notes, observe here, 1. Our blessed Lord calls his death his glory. Now is the Son of Man glorified. That is, now is the time at hand when I am to die, and shall by my death finish the work of man's redemption, and thereby imminently glorify God. God the Father was imminently glorified in the obedience and suffering of his dear and only Son. It is true that the sufferings of Christ were ignominious in themselves, yet were they the way to his own glory, and his Father's also. For by them he redeemed a lost world, trampled upon Satan, triumphed over sin. And the Father was exceedingly glorified by the Son's giving obedience to his will, and so cheerfully suffering. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you. Burkett notes, observe here an endearing compilation, a sweet title given by Christ to his disciples, little children, intimating that tender affection which he bears unto them, though now upon the point of departing from them. Learn thence that whatever Christ's dealings are or may be with his people in respect of his removing and withdrawing from them, yet he still retains a relation of a father to them, and will in his absence from them exercise such care over them as parents have of their young and tender children, so much that the title of little children imply and import. Observe farther the plain intimation which our Savior gives to his disciples of his death being very nigh, for it was the very next day. He tells them that he was going to heaven, and whither he went, they could not come. That is, not presently. They should follow him, their forerunner, afterwards. But at present, he had a great deal of work for them to do, though his own work was done. Until they had finished their work, whether he went, they could not come. Learn hence, that though it be rest which the saints may lawfully desire, an everlasting rest with Christ in glory, yet must they not refuse to labor while their Lord will have it so. Till their work be done, whether Christ is gone, they cannot come. Ye shall seek me, but whither I go at present, you cannot come. Verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Burkett notes, our Savior having mentioned his departure from his disciples in the former verse, I go away, and whither I go you cannot come. In this and the following verses, he gives them a strict charge that in his absence they should love one another. This he calls a new commandment, not that it was new in regard of institution, but of restitution, not new in regard to the substance of it, for it was a branch of the law of nature and a known precept of the Jewish religion. But he calls it a new commandment, one, 
because purged from the old corrupt glosses of the Pharisees, who had limited this duty of love and confined it to their own countrymen. Whereas Christ enlarges the object and obliges his disciples to love all mankind, even their very enemies. Two, because this duty of love was so greatly advanced and heightened by our Savior, as to the measure and degree of it, even to the laying down of our lives for one another. Three, it's called a new commandment because urged from a new motive and enforced by a new example. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Never was this duty so effectually taught, so mightily encouraged, so much urged and insisted upon by any teacher as our Savior. And never was there such an example given out of it as his own. For it's a new commandment, because with the rest it was never to wax old, but to be always fresh in the memory and practice of Christ's disciples to the end of the world. Verse 35. By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Burkett notes, To recommend the foregoing duty of loving one another with the greater advantage, our Savior tells us here that it will be the best evidence of our relation to him as sincere disciples. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. The disciples of John were known by the austerity of their lives. The disciples of the Pharisee by their habit and separation from other men. Christ will have his disciples known by their profound affection to one another, which in primitive times was so conspicuous that the very heathens did cry and say out, See how the Christians love one another. Observe here, one, our Savior doth not say, By this men shall conjure and guess that you belong to me as being my disciples, but that they shall certainly know it. Two, he doth not say, By this shall you know yourselves to be my disciples and one another to be so, but by this shall all others know it as well as yourselves. Three, he doth not say, by this shall all men know that ye look like my disciples, but that you are indeed what you pretend to be, namely, by your loving one another. For Christ doth not say, By this all the world know that you are my disciples, by your assembling often together in my house of prayer, by your frequent fastings, by your reading of the scriptures daily, by your hearing sermons weekly, by your receiving sacraments monthly. All these things put together will be no sufficient evidence of your discipleship if you keep up a secret grudge in your hearts one towards another. But by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you love one another. Learn hence that one of the best proofs and evidences we can have of our relation to Christ as his sincere disciples is a hearty love and goodwill one towards another. Verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Burkett notes, here we find Peter reflecting upon what our Savior had said just before, verse 33, whether I go, you cannot come. He is inquisitive to know of Christ whether he went. 
Our Lord tells him that for present he could not follow him, but should hereafter. He was not yet strong enough to suffer for him, as he should and did afterwards. St. Peter, grieved at this, rashly resolves to follow him, though he should die for his sake. Christ advises him not to be overconfident of his strength and standing, for he should deny him thrice, wherein the time of the cock crowing. Observe here, one, how that fond conceit which our Lord's disciple had of his temporal kingdom here in this world did abide and continue with him to the very last. For when Christ spake of leaving them by ascending into heaven, Peter understands him of a removal that was earthly from one place to another, whereas Christ intended it of a removal from earth to heaven. The opinion that the Messiah was to be a temporal prince and that his kingdom should be of this world was so deeply rooted in the minds of the Jews that they stumbled at it fatally, and Christ's own disciples had so drank in the notion that they wondered to hear Christ say that he was going from them and that whether he go, they cannot come. Observe, too, that Christ's disciples shall certainly follow their master afterwards and be forever with the Lord, but they must wait their Lord's time and finish their Lord's work. They must patiently wait for their change and not peevishly wish for it. For though they do not follow Christ presently to heaven, they shall follow him afterwards. Observe three, the greatness of St. Peter's confidence. I will lay down my life for thy sake. Good man. He resolved honestly, but to too much in his own strength. Little, oh little, did he think, what a feather he would be in the wind of temptation if once God left him to the power and prevalency of his own fears. The holiest of men knows not his own strength till temptation brings him to the trial. Observe lastly how detestable St. Peter's presumption and self-confidence was to Christ and how fatal and pernicious to himself. Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? As if Christ had said, Peter, thou sayest more than thou can do. Thine own strength will fail thee and thy self-confidence deceive thee. I know thy heart better than thou dost thyself, and I foresee that before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Thence learn that none are so near falling as those that are most confident of their own standing. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also, and whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior in the foregoing chapter, having acquainted his disciples with his approaching death by the treachery of Judas, their hearts were thereupon overwhelmed with grief and trouble. Accordingly, in this chapter, by sundry arguments, he comforts his disciples against the perplexities of their fears and sorrows. Observe, one, how Christ addresses himself to his disciples in a very endearing and affectionate manner. Let not your heart be troubled. Whence learn, one, that the best and holiest of God's children and servants, while here in an imperfect state, are subject to desponding and disquieting and distressful fears. Two, that no work is more delightful to our Savior than to comfort the troubled and perplexed spirits of his servants. Observe, too, the remedy which Christ prescribes for calming their present fears. 
and for arming them against future troubles, and that is, faith in the Father and in Himself. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. Hence learn, one, that God is the supreme object of faith, His unchangeable life and faithfulness, with His infinite power in the accomplishing of His promise, is the security of believers. Learn, too, that Christ as mediator between God and guilty creatures is the immediate object of our faith. Learn, three, that Christ's being the true and proper object of our faith is a proof of his being truly and really God. Christ does here assert his own deity in the substance of the command, in making himself an object of faith, in conjunction with God the Father. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Observe next, the arguments of consolation which Christ propounds for the support of his disciples under the sorrows which they had conceived for his approaching departure. One, he tells them that heaven, whither he was now going, was his father's house, a place of happiness not designed for himself alone, but for many more to enjoy a perpetual rest and abode in, as in everlasting mansions. In my father's house are many mansions. Heaven is God's house, in which he will freely converse with his domestics, his children, and servants, and they shall enjoy full glory there, as in a quiet and capacious habitation. A second ground of comfort is that he assures them he will come again and receive them to himself, that they may live together with him in the heavenly mansions. This promise Christ makes good to his saints partly at the day of their death and perfectly at the day of judgment, when he shall make one errand for all, and take up all his children to himself, and make them completely happy, both in soul and body, with himself. Learn hence, that though Christ has removed his bodily presence from his friends on earth, yet his love to them has not ceased, nor will he rest satisfied, till he and they meet again, eternally, to solace themselves in each other's company. I will come again, and receive to you myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. A third argument for consolation is that notwithstanding Christ was to leave them, yet they knew whither he went, namely to heaven, and which was the way thither. Whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. It contributes much to the comfort of believers as to know God and heaven, so to know the way that leads thither, that so they may be armed against all the difficulties of that way. Verses 5 and 6. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father, but by me. Briquet notes. Observe here, one, how Thomas and probably diverse others of the apostles, notwithstanding all that Christ had said to the contrary, did still dream of a temporal kingdom, and supposed him to speak of some earthly palace which he was going to, and therefore he tells our Savior he knew not whither he was going. But Christ, meaning not a temporal but a heavenly kingdom, tells them that if they intend to follow him and be with him in heaven, he himself was the only way thither. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. That is, I am the true and living way to the Father, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. That is, No man can have any access to God by prayer or any other act of religious worship here on earth or any access to God in heaven but by me as mediator. As if Christ had said, I am the author of the way that leadeth unto life, 
the teacher of the truth which directs to it, and the giver of that life which is to be obtained by walking in it. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. Verses 7-11 through If ye had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long a time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the work. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Burkett notes, observe here, one, what a gross conception that the apostles had, and St. Philip in particular, of the divine nature and being, as if God the Father could be seen with mortal eyes. Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. It is not easy to determine what degree of ignorance may consist with saving grace. Doubtless, as the degrees of revelation and means of knowledge are more or less, so a person's ignorance is more or less excusable before God. Observe, too, how meekly our blessed Savior reproves their ignorance. Have I been so long a time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? And then proceeds to instruct them in, and further acquaints them with, the oneness of himself with the Father, and the personal union of the divine and human natures in himself. Learn hence that the Father, being invisible in his essence, to know or see him with mortal bodily eyes is impossible, but he was seen in his Son, who is the express image of the Father, being one in essence with him, and one in operation also. He that hath seeneth me has seen the Father. Verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Burkett notes, Here Christ gives his disciples a, a promise of enduing them with power after his departure, to work miracles in some respects greater than he wrought himself, not greater in regard of the manner, for he wrought by his own power, and they wrought all in his name but greater in regard of the matter of them. Particularly, they're speaking with strange tongues, they're giving the Holy Ghost by laying on of hands, they're healing diseases by the very shadow of their bodies, but especially by their wonderful conversion of the Gentiles from idolatry to serving the living God. When St. Peter converted 3,000 at one sermon, then Christ made good this promise. The disciple at that time appeared to be above his master. Christ all his time was angling for a few fishes and catched but a hundred and twenty, Acts 1.15, while Peter comes with his dragnet and catches three thousand at one cast. The reason might be because Christ was not properly to be the builder, but the foundation itself. He subjoins the reason of all of this, because I go unto my Father. That is, to send down and pour forth upon you, my apostles, the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost which was the great cause of the apostles' miraculous operations. Hence learn that it pleased the wisdom of Christ to do greater things by the hands of his weak servants here in the world than he was pleased to do himself, who was God over all, blessed forevermore. Verses 13 and 14 
And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Burkett notes, In these words, our Savior produces another argument to quiet his disciples' hearts under their perplexity and trouble for the loss of his bodily presence. He assures them that whatever comforts they enjoyed by his presence, they shall obtain by their prayers. Observe here, 1. The qualification requisite in prayer. We must pray in Christ's name, that is, for the sake of his merits and mediation, in obedience to God's command and with an eye to his glory and for such things agreeable to his will, and for things which his wisdom sees good for us. To pray in Christ's name is more than to name Christ in prayer. It implies three things. One, to look up unto Christ as having purchased for us this privilege that we may pray. For it is by the blood of Christ that we draw near to God, and that a throne of grace is open for us. Two, To pray in the name of Christ is to pray in the strength of Christ and by the assistance of the Holy Spirit of Christ. 3. To pray in the name of Christ is to pray in the virtue of the present mediation of Christ, believing that what we ask on earth Christ obtains in heaven. To pray thus is no easy matter, yet unless we do pray thus, we do not pray at all. Observe 2. The promise made to such prayers. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. He saith not, that will my Father do, but that will I do, to testify his divine power and oneness with the Father. This evidently proves him to be God. Observe 3, the repetition of the promise for the further confirmation of it. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. The promise is doubled for the confirmation of it, that so we might be free from all fear and doubt of being heard when we put our prayers to God in the name and mediation of Jesus Christ for all things agreeable to his will. Learn hence that although the children of God have sometimes many jealousies and fears arising in their mind concerning the answer of their prayers, yet they are altogether groundless, for it is most certain that their desire shall be granted them so far as the wisdom of God sees fit and convenient for them. And for that reason, our Savior redoubles the promise, If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it.